to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight in the podcast, we're talking about post-stroke recovery. Also going to be talking about the hidden risks of some common over-the-counter medications, Tylenol and Advil. Also talking parental alienation and the profound chasm that separates what was from the profound mystery of what lies ahead, the space in between. I'm Maureen McGrath. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. According to the World Stroke Organization, one in four of us will have a stroke in our lifetime, and 90% of those strokes can be prevented by addressing a small number of risk factors. This year, World Stroke Organization is mobilizing the global stroke community to raise awareness and drive action on stroke prevention. Getting involved and showing that we can be together can help to improve outcomes for patients. So we are getting involved and getting together with Dr. Sean Duclo, who joins me on the line from Calgary. Dr. Duclo is a medical director of stroke rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program. Good evening, Dr. Duclo. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining the program tonight and talking about this really important subject. Wow, one in four of us will have a stroke in our lifetime. I honestly did not realize that, and I'm a registered nurse. <laughs> yeah, the so the most recent numbers out this year uh, are close to 110,000 Canadians have a stroke annually, and there's about 900,000 um, individuals um, living with the effects of stroke in Canada. So it's, That's just- it's quite prevalent. It's incredible. And there are some risk factors that people can prevent stroke. What are some of those risk factors? Well, you know, the the number one risk factor is high blood pressure. And uh, the uh, important thing there to do is check your blood pressure. And if it's elevated, talk to your physician, uh, because there's, there's things you can do uh, from medications to diet to try to help manage your, uh, your high blood pressure. You know, that's one thing in my clinical practice. I ask everybody, you know, what do you know what your numbers are, your weight, your blood pressure, BMI? And they will, they don't even know that it consists of two numbers. Or they'll say, my doctor said it was fine. And I'll say, well, what was it? I, I don't know. Do we need to educate more about high blood pressure and what the numbers mean and, and what the levels are, your, what your blood pressure should be, how high it should go? Yes. I mean, that's a discussion that I have frequently with patients who are coming in after they've had a stroke, Um, but uh, doing it more with folks so that they don't have a stroke is also important. And when we're thinking about, you know, guidelines around hypertension, we're typically talking about for someone who is not a diabetic, keeping that top number of the systolic pressure under 140 and Mm -hmm. keeping the bottom number under 90. And for individuals with diabetes, the, the current targets are even lower than that, 130 uh, for the top number and 80 for the bottom number and keeping both of, both of your numbers below those two numbers. And it's so important. People are so afraid that there might be something wrong that they often don't want to go to a doctor, they don't want to have a test, and they don't want to check their blood pressure. But this is really preventive. This is something I'm on about all the time. I'm glad you are as well. But it's unfortunate that you're speaking to patients after they've had a stroke about their blood pressure. Do you find that likely people have had high blood pressure prior to their stroke and they knew it? 
it's quite it's quite often that they've had high blood pressure, whether they knew it or not. Uh, we we see a number of people who haven't checked their blood pressure in years, um, and they've come into the emergency department with high blood pressure and stroke. And you know, my uh, my acute care colleagues are are good at starting the management of the of their blood pressure. We carry that on into rehabilitation, and then our family physicians take over. Um, but uh, but keeping an eye on that before you have a stroke or a heart attack, for that matter, it's a risk factor for, for a heart attack, is just so important. Absolutely. What are some of the other risk factors or some of the things that people can address to reduce their risk of stroke? Well, so one is, you know, watching, watching what you're eating, uh, because as we get bigger, obesity is a, is a big uh, risk factor. Uh, so... Um, and th- th- there are some other ones that aren't modifiable, like age and sex. If you're an older male, you're more likely to have a stroke than if you're female. Um, How about smoking? And, smoking. and- sorry, yeah, and smoking. <laughs> yes, I mean that's <laughs> so. Um, smoking, the amount of smoking has decreased. Thankfully, I think in, in a lot of the patients that I see, uh, but it's still a significant risk factor and it can uh, put up your blood pressure as well. And so it's combined. So um, we do see in, in my clinic, we see a number of young women coming through who are on uh, hormone uh, containing contraceptives. And so we can see that as a risk factor as well. And so uh, I think it's a surprise. It's not that it's not common, but it does happen. Wow. That's interesting. So they would be younger women typically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, often in their twenties and early thirties. Um, and, and again, it's not, it's, it's pretty rare, but it, it does happen. Yes. Something women need to be made aware of. And, and also I read something recently that for women who are going through perimenopause and menopause, who've experienced hot flashes, that can be a sign that there has been more damage done to their arteries and they're at greater risk of, of stroke and heart attack. Um, do you see women who are suffering with symptoms at the menopause um, that are at greater risk of stroke or have had a stroke? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, and I mean, I, do, I certainly see women who are going through menopause who have strokes. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I've certainly seen a smoking gun where we've we've thought that you know menopause was the causal agent in the stroke. Um, uh-huh. um, so I, I think there's probably a little more research that needs to be done around that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, there's so much more research that needs to be done around menopause, and more women need to get treated as well. And also, women need to take their blood pressure. I don't know that women are educated as much as men are even about blood pressure. I think we tend to associate stroke with men. Is that correct? Well, I think, I think it, in public perception often, but um, we did a study just a few years ago and looked at incidents of uh, stroke in Alberta, and it's fairly evenly split between men and women. I think that's it, some of the national numbers may indicate that women are more likely to have a stroke just by a, by a small margin. Um, and what we did, what we did see is women tend to have their strokes when they're a bit older in the study we did in Alberta, they were, they were on average about 10 years older than men. So the risk of stroke, of course, goes up as you age, it increases pretty substantially 
case, you get over the age of 55. Um, but in our Alberta data, our men, on average, were having strokes around age 64, 65, and, and our women were into their mid-70s. Interesting. And is it ever too late to begin to change or modify some of one's lifestyle behaviors? Uh, no. Does that help to reduce your risk? Yeah, I mean, it, it really, what we're talking about is is risk reduction, right? And so anything you can do will help to some extent. So, I mean, it would be great if we all, you know, we were all uh, maintained a healthy body weight and, and good blood pressure and didn't smoke for our entire lives. Um, but uh, that's not the case for many people. And so at some point, you have to make a choice um, to you know, put down cigarettes and to keep an eye on your blood pressure, talk with your physician about um, managing your blood pressure if it's elevated, keep an eye on what you're eating. Uh, and if you have diabetes, managing your blood sugars, managing your cholesterol, all of those things can contribute to decreasing your annual risk of having a stroke. My guest is Dr. Sean Duclo, Medical Director of Stroke Rehabilitation for the Calgary Stroke Program. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Duclo. I have a question for you that involves social media. We're talking stroke, by the way, and risk of stroke, prevention of stroke, and what happens once you've had a stroke. Um, the other day on Facebook, I saw a woman say, my doctor has ordered lisinopril for my hypertension. I'm afraid to take it. What does everybody think? Well, there was a barrage of comments, some good advice, some not so good advice. What are your thoughts on going to social media and Facebook communities for your medical advice? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I would probably not get my medical advice from social media. If you're concerned about what your doctor's prescribed, you could potentially get a second opinion from another physician. Um, you know, most of our physicians or our, our uh, nurses and allied health we work with have years and years of medical experience. And uh, there are, you know, lots of people who comment on social media who have no medical experience at all. And that that's very concerning for me. Yeah, it's that. a huge concern for me, too. I see it all the time. Yeah. I see people with no medical background selling programs and services that are then they upsell patients and they give these false promises and misinformation. And and I think, um, you know, it's extremely dangerous. And, and I do think it's tied somehow to our healthcare system. But that's another segment. Um, how does somebody know if someone is having a stroke? Uh, so for that... Um, we, there's an acronym that they ask us to remember, which is FAST. So if they're having trouble moving their face, their arm, uh, or they're having difficulty with their speech, then it's time to call 911. Realistically, someone who's having a stroke, uh, if you step back from that, it can have paralysis on one side of the body. They can have difficulty speaking. They can have difficulty with vision. Uh, it onsets acutely, so meaning it happens all of a sudden. And... When it does, we've got uh, a window of just a few hours to be able to get access to uh, therapies to try, if it's a clotting type of stroke, to break up the clot. That's, those are called thrombolytics. And in some places in Canada, there's access to what's called endovascular therapy, where they actually go up into the artery that's blocked and pull the clot out. But the clock is ticking rapidly uh, if you see those symptoms in someone you care about or someone on the street uh, and think they're having a stroke. 
Absolutely. And so um, can people who are having a stroke, do it, does it always end up that they will have sequela or, you know, difficulty walking afterward or difficulty with speech? Well, what happens after? What are, what are the risks of uh, somebody who's had a stroke to their quality of life? Yeah. Um, well, the risks the risk are quite high. Uh, to your first question, in some patients, we'll have something called a, a TIA or transient ischemic attack. You'll hear it sometimes called a mini stroke. And in that case, you're dealing with sort of a temporary blockage of the blood vessel that causes the brain not to function right. So temporary paralysis lasts less than 24 hours, and generally patient recovers to their baseline, so where they were before. What we worry about with those is those are foreboding that a big stroke is on its way, and your risk of having a stroke that will lead to significant disability is actually quite high after you've had a TIA. And so those are medical emergency TIA needs to come to hospital to be seen by a physician and it may have to have uh, a change in medical management. In fact, likely have to have a change in their medical management in terms of trying to prevent a big stroke from coming. And to your second question about what are the, what are the sequelae? I mean, I'm a rehabilitation physician and so I'll, I'll see patients who have a condition called aphasia where they can't communicate patients who have what's called hemiparesis, they have trouble moving one side of their body, and so they can't walk or they can't have use of their arm. Uh, and we'll also see individuals who have cognitive effects, so they have trouble thinking after their stroke. So the impact of the stroke depends on what part of the brain is damaged in the stroke and how badly that part of the brain is damaged. And people really don't know what part of their brain is going to be damaged, and, and their life can change drastically after a stroke, um, suffering things like paralysis and, and spasticity and difficulty speaking, as you mentioned. Um, how, how long does it take to find out how a patient will be once they've had a stroke? So is it, you know, will they recover over time and, and how, what's the optimal time where they'll get the best recovery? Yeah, so it depends a bit on the severity of the stroke. Uh, individuals with what we classify as a milder stroke, you know, often have their maximum recovery in about the first six to eight weeks after the stroke. Individuals with a more moderate to severe stroke who may have had, you know, significant um, paralysis can take anywhere between three or six months before they will start to level off in terms of their recovery. And in rehab, we work a lot with trying to uh, help people get better through therapy, people work with the physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist. And so they can continue to make some gains beyond those first three to six months, but often it's a substantial effort. They have to put in lots of hours of therapy to be able to make those improvements. And this can also lead to mental health issues, I would imagine, as well. Somebody who's been carrying on in life, having a great time smoking, not exercising, watching a lot of TV, uh, perhaps drinking alcohol, uh, not caring about their diet, and then, but, but going on, enjoying life. And then they're hit by a stroke. What does that do to people emotionally? Uh, it's, uh, it can be quite a roller coaster. About a third of our patients develop uh, depression after stroke. And in general, it's fairly responsive to treatment with, with medication. Many of them will work with a psychologist, um, but it can be it can be quite devastating. I see people who are impacted in their twenties, thirties, and, and 
uh, 40s, they've got children at home, they can't return to work because they've had a stroke. Uh, and so it's a major life change. Mm-hmm. And are there treatments for post-stroke spasticity? There are. So spasticity is is a stiffness of, of the limb and it's caused by the stroke. And so um, it, it can lead to contracture of the limb. It can lead to pain. It can lead to problems dressing. Uh, problems moving. And so we deal with that with a, a number of different uh, approaches that range from a therapist working on stretching with a patient to splinting a limb in a position that uh, is uh, more appropriate than having your fingers curled up and your elbow flexed. And then we have treatments that involve oral medications or injectable medications like botulinum toxin that we can use to reduce spasticity and help improve the patient's function, reduce pain. Well, that sounds great. Sounds like there have been some advancements made, but um, to to my mind, prevention is key, especially when it comes to stroke. Um, Would you agree? I agree, yes. It's very important. Excellent, excellent. Is there any place um, listeners can go to learn more about um, stroke and and post-stroke recovery? Yeah, so the Heart and Stroke Canada website, which is heartandstroke.ca, has a number of uh, basic facts about um, about stroke and uh, can provide an interesting read for patients, and I'll send patients there. I think that's that's probably a good start. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining the program tonight, Dr. Duclos. Thank you for having me. This is a subject that I have been meaning to talk about for such a long time. It's a really important subject. It's something people do daily. Oftentimes people do it several times a day and they think that it's benign, but not necessarily. What am I talking about? I am talking about pain and fever reducers like acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Oftentimes people think that this is not going to harm them, that these are over the counter But people take acetaminophen and ibuprofen, Tylenol and Advil for various reasons, mainly to relieve pain. And that's where people take this repeatedly. But there are some side effects. Each of the medications has its own set of uses and benefits. And I'm going to review that with you this evening. So acetaminophen is commonly used for pain relief. It's effective for managing mild to moderate pain like headaches, toothaches, menstrual cramps, muscle aches. It's also a great fever reducer. It can help to reduce a fever, and so it's a popular choice for both children and adults. And arthritis, a lot of people with arthritis suffer quite a bit, and they pop the Tylenol um, quite frequently throughout the day. Um, Sometimes people take both uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen. Uh, It's safe for the stomach. It's generally considered gentler on the stomach compared to ibuprofen, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And so therefore, it's a preferred option for people who have stomach sensitivity or GI or gastrointestinal issues. Now, ibuprofen, on the other hand, as I mentioned, is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. It provides pain relief. It's particularly effective in reducing pain and inflammation. And it's often used to manage very similar pains like headaches, dental pain, muscle aches, joint pain. A lot of people suffer with those. 
fever reduction, it can also help to reduce a fever. But this one is used a little bit more commonly to alleviate symptoms in inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, and musculoskeletal disorders, and also menstrual cramps because there can often be pain and discomfort associated with menstrual cramps, so people will choose ibuprofen. Some people utilize ibuprofen to manage the pain and inflammation that's associated with migraines. And, and it's often prescribed as well for post-operative pain management. But it's very important to understand that both acetaminophen and ibuprofen, Tylenol and Advil respectively, and naproxen, those types of anti-inflammatory, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory or NSAIDs have their own mechanisms of action and potential side effects. They're not benign. And the choice between them often depends on the specific type of pain or the condition. People have individual preferences. I feel like Tylenol works better for me. I don't really like to take it very often, but sometimes if I have a headache, I might take that. I also notice that it helps me to sleep a little bit better, even though I'm a good sleeper, but I just feel like it sort of has a relaxing effect on me, which you wouldn't think of with something so simple as Tylenol or even Advil. Um, so people have their preferences and with regard to any existing health concerns. Also, some people may use these medications under the guidance of a healthcare professional, a medical doctor, for specific medical conditions. And so it's very important that you follow the recommended dosages and usage instructions to ensure, to ensure safety and effectiveness as well. But if you have any questions, it's a great idea to contact your healthcare provider, medical doctor, nurse practitioner, um, registered nurse, if you're having education about post-op through a registered nurse, um, physiotherapist, anyway, anyone with a license there. <laughs> um, because, you know, there's lots of uh, there's lots of advice given, especially on social media these days, or people write books and, and they, they look at something that they're not physicians, not nurses, not nurse uh, practitioners, and they look at something through a particular lens, and they don't take into consideration all of the issues surrounding something. So it's very important that you deal with a medical doctor, you know, nurse practitioner on most things as it relates to your health. As I mentioned, these two medications are commonly used. They're over the counter. They reduce fevers, different mechanisms of action. But it's very important that you mention to your healthcare provider that, you know, that you're taking them because they can actually interact with other medications. And I'll get into that. But before that, there are certain potential dangers and side effects that are associated with each of the medications. So acetaminophen, for example, or Tylenol, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most significant dangers of acetaminophen is the potential for liver damage, especially when taken in high doses or for an extended period. Sometimes people take these for weeks on end, for years. And so overdosing on acetaminophen or Tylenol can lead to severe liver injury or failure, and that can be life-threatening. Many people can have an allergic reaction, um, and they may experience allergic reactions such as skin reactions, itching, and swelling. The other thing people don't realize, and think of that liver, is that when you combine Tylenol with alcohol, it can increase the risk of liver damage, as both substances can have a negative impact on your liver. And so, best idea is to avoid alcohol when taking Tylenol. I know, I'm sorry, I'm uh, the party pooper here, but 
it is very important because you really do not want to have um, liver damage or any impact on the liver. In terms of ibuprofen, which is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, or um, we see it in like Advil and um, also naproxen, naproxen, this can cause irritation and damage to your stomach lining, and that can lead to stomach ulcers, bleeding, and abdominal pain. And so the best thing to do is to take your Advil with food or use the lowest effective dose because both of those will help to minimize your risk of getting gastrointestinal or GI issues. There is some evidence to support that long-term high dose use of ibuprofen may increase your risk of a heart attack and stroke. Always best to get to the reason you're having the pain and to try to deal with that as opposed to masking it or putting a Band-Aid on it. People with a history of heart disease, high blood pressure, or other cardiovascular issues should be cautious when using ibuprofen and definitely should do so under the guidance of a healthcare provider. Prolonged use of ibuprofen, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, can lead to kidney damage in some people, especially if those people are dehydrated or if they have pre-existing kidney issues. And of course, because ibuprofen is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug or an NSAID, N-S-A-I-D, it can interfere with blood clotting. And so there is a bleeding risk. So your bleeding risk may increase with the use of ibuprofen, particularly if you are taking blood thinning medications. And a lot of people are taking blood thinning medications these days, as we've heard in terms of um, stroke and, and cardiovascular disease. We've heard that in the past on the program, even tonight. And also, of course, just like acetaminophen, allergic reactions to ibuprofen can occur. And you can get skin rashes and hives or even more severe reactions in rare cases. So it's so important. And I don't think we think about this because it's, it is an over-the-counter medication. And we just think, oh, you know what? I've got a pain here. I'm just going to take acetaminophen. The pain persists. It becomes chronic. I'm just going to continue to take ibuprofen. I'm going to take ibuprofen and acetaminophen. I'm going to take the maximum dosages to get the relief from the pain. But there are so many other things that you can do. And I'll get into that to manage your pain. But before I do that, I'd like to just underscore the fact that it's crucial that you use these medications responsibly. Seek medical advice if you're unsure about their use, especially if you have underlying health conditions, with, which most people do, as they, especially as they age, or if you're taking other medications. And it's important to follow the recommended dosages, take the lowest dose possible to relieve the pain, avoid exceeding the maximum daily dose to reduce the risk of adverse events or side effects. And if you experience any unusual symptoms or side effects while taking these medications, consult a healthcare professional promptly because they can provide guidance on safe and appropriate usage. I want to talk to you about a patient in my clinical practice this week who found herself at a crossroad in her life that left her feeling sad, nervous, down, teary-eyed. Many people find themselves at this place at different junctures of their life. What place am I talking about? I'm talking about the space in between. Are you familiar with the space in between? Chances are you've been there. The space in between comes from the Japanese reading ma. 
It's a reading of a Sino-Japanese character, which is often used to refer to what is claimed to be a specific Japanese concept of negative space. In modern interpretations of traditional Japanese arts and culture, ma is taken to refer to an artistic interpretation of an empty space, often holding as much importance as the rest of an artwork and focusing the viewer on the intention of negative space in an art piece. The concept of space as a positive entity is opposed to the absence of such a principle in a correlated Japanese notion of space. Though commonly used to refer to literal, visible negative space, ma may also refer to the perception of a space, a gap, or an interval in your life without necessarily requiring a physical compositional element. This results in the concept of ma being less reliant on the existence of a gap and more closely related to the perception of a gap. We see these times in our lives as a gap, as a space in between. What do we do now? What do we do next? As opposed to honoring that space. The existence of ma in artwork has been interpreted as an emptiness full of possibilities, like a promise yet to be fulfilled, and has been described as the silence between the notes, which makes the music. And I love that. How often have you been in a place in between jobs, uh, just came out of a relationship, uh, retiring, different time in your life where you're like, what's next? Is this it? My patient this week suffered job loss, marital breakup, launching her kids. She was an empty nester. She was really empty because at the same time that her children went off to university, her husband left. And she found her place, her, she found herself at a place where she was incredibly unfamiliar. The space in between is what I told her. That's where she was the silence between the notes, which make the music. In other words, things can get better. Call me an optimist. Go right ahead. Others have. It's that void that permeates the gaps between situations or relationships or a time in life. It embodies that inherent energy perceived within a specific void and serves as a momentary pause within the ongoing motion or continuous flow of life. Stricken with a sense of unease, anxiety, and profound loneliness, my patient found herself far from content in her current situation. I'm going to call her Sally. Sally was perpetually busy and was ill-equipped to face the emotional toll exacted by her children's departure from the nest, not to mention the breakup of her marriage. She found herself at the space in between. She had no job, no husband. The children were gone, for the time anyway. The space in between who she was and who she is becoming, I told her. As a devoted wife and a full-time working mother, the years hurried past Sally in a blur. How many of us can relate to that? You just think, did that just happen? Where have those years gone? Where has the time gone? The dreams and aspirations that once united her and her husband crumbled into a pile of ashes. It left her feeling empty, echoing space in their wake. She was alone with her thoughts and looking back at her life, wondering, is this it? Have you ever looked back at your life and thought, is this it? Many people do. 
I see a lot of people in my clinical practice at different stages of their life wondering what happened? Why did I make that decision? What's, what does the future hold? It's that space in between. But when you're there, you're looking back and anxious about the future. And you may often think, is this it? In the tapestry of our existence, we often find ourselves at the culmination of a significant life chapter, the juncture by design, the inexorable march of time, the hand of destiny. It's a poignant encounter that you might have with illness, choices, or a seismic shockwave of trauma. And all of that ushers us into a curious realm. Here we confront the profound chasm that separates what was from the profound mystery of what lies ahead. A space pregnant with the echoes of our personal history and vibrant with the secrets of tomorrow's promise shrouded in tantalizing veils of uncertainty. And that's what we have trouble living with, those tantalizing veils of uncertainty. We want to plan. We want to know what to expect. But you know what? Life isn't like that. Life comes out of left field sometimes. A stage four cancer diagnosis can change somebody's life in a heartbeat. A time when it all seems like your world has crumbled down around you. But what I said to my patient, Sally, and what I'd like to say to you is that it's in these moments that we stand on the precipice, gazing out at this vast expanse that lies between the familiar territory that we're so used to and of what was, because we've lived it, and the enigmatic, uncharted realms of what the future holds. Be positive. This can be a very difficult time of life, these things that occur, and oftentimes they occur as a perfect storm. And when we don't know what to do, maybe just don't do. Maybe appreciate the space in between. We've talked about this in the past, and so many of you were interested and texted in and had shared your experiences that I thought I would bring her back again to talk about parental alienation. Natalie Forchuk is the founder and advocate for Parental Alienation Support Canada. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Natalie. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for asking. Now, through Parental Alienation Support Canada, you support people mentally, physically, and emotionally through parental alienation. This is something that you are familiar with as it happened to you. Can you share your story with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, In the fall of 2016, my children transitioned to living in Ontario. So the little bit of backstory is we planned to move uh, in um, September of 2016 to Burlington, Ontario, uh, both my ex and I, even though we weren't together anymore. And my very best friend was living there. And she's part of the reason that I wanted to move. I want to move away from uh, Vancouver. There's a lot of baggage here. I wanted a fresh start. Kids get a fresh start. And so the three of us agreed that the kids would start the school year uh, on time, and therefore she would become their guardian, and my ex would move out there, and then I would move out there in December, because I had a business to close down. Now, this person had been in our lives since my daughter was six weeks old, so no fear there. Legal documents are drawn. Fantastic. We fly out there. Kids start school. They're settled in. They've got scouts. They've got guides. I'm back in Vancouver, 
And I'm going back and forth now to Toronto every three weeks to see my kids. And I'm talking to them every day. In the course of six weeks, suddenly my children refused to speak with me. And both my ex and my best friend were telling me, well, there's some things coming up, Natalie, that they don't like about you. There are things that you've done that scared them. And I started talking to a counselor there who told me that she wouldn't allow me to talk to my kids. Over the course of four months, I lost complete contact with my kids and my ex and this person blocked me from even seeing them when I flew to Ontario. So I'd be flying there and I would not be able to see them. Now, many people ask me all the time, why didn't you call the police while you were there? Why didn't you move earlier? And it's, it's complicated. When you're in early PA, especially if you don't know what it is, you can't put a name to it, you're in denial. I had no idea what this was. These were people that I trusted, people that I gave my children to, and suddenly my children hate me. I moved out on December 19th, 2023, on a very cold, dark, snowy night in Ontario. My children were residing two blocks away from me at my best friend's house, and um, I couldn't access, couldn't see them. Trying to talk to my ex? Absolutely not. The only contact I got were some uh, photos on Christmas Eve of all of them together, two blocks away from me, while I was alone. I continually tried to see them over the course of um, December into the new year of 2017. My children's birthdays are both in January 2017. I wasn't able to see them. At this point, I'm sending emails every day and texts every day to my ex and to this other person saying, we need to solve this. What can I do? At this point, I'm not working yet in Ontario. So this is a full-time job. And I am devastated. Um, I have videos that I made daily uh, at that time. And it was horrible to go back and watch because I just didn't know what to do. On uh, January 16th, I was served for sole custody by my ex. And that began the court process. He engaged the top divorce lawyers in Toronto. So I engaged, had to engage a top lawyer in Burlington, a, uh, she's actually a criminal defense lawyer, and we began the process of going to court. We went through five court dates over the course, uh, course of January to May of 2017. All during this time, I'm not seeing my kids. They are kept from me. I can't show up at the school. I can't pick them up. I haven't seen them. I haven't talked to them. Like By the day, the chasm is growing in my heart of not seeing my children. It was horrible. I was a shell of a person. Finally, we had a long motion, which is a trial. Um, it was ruled parental alienation, which was very rare back in 2016. We had a great judge, but I still didn't get my kids back. Funny enough, it took a medical event on my uh, ex's side for me to get emergency custody. And I'm actually just looking at the document here on April 28th of 2017. And here's the interesting thing. When I picked up my children, it was like no time had passed. They were excited to see me. And that's the thing about parental alienation. The kids don't know what's going on. They're being kept from the other parent. They're being manipulated. They're being told what to do and what not to do and that, you know, falsehoods about the other parent. And when they saw me, they hugged me. They were happy. They came home with me. We had dinner. Yes, there were some little bumps that we had to go through. But overall, we settled right back into a really great schedule. At that point, though, we're also ruled to go through what's called reunification therapy. And it's about as fun as it sounds. Uh, it's done by a private therapist. 
and you do family therapy, individual therapy, and couples therapy. And we were ordered to do it for a year. So from May 2017 until June 2018, I spent three to four hours a week in this therapist's office, often being told that I wasn't allowed to have the feelings that I had, which were anger and guilt and shame and heartbreak, because I wasn't productive in the therapeutic process. It was an absolute ridiculous ride. And at the same time, I had to facilitate a regular 50-50 custody schedule, like nothing had ever happened. Uh, I was shell-shocked. Wow. I mean, there's parts of, I had to do a lot of research and writing in order to remember all of these points. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of it is, until I started really digging into like every email, every court document, and I put together my timeline, I couldn't remember half of this. It was such a traumatic time. I'm sure it was. Um, stepping back to that, I mean, there's such betrayal uh, by, on the part of your husband, and not only your husband, but by your best friend as well. Um, yeah. Were there marital issues before moving out to Ontario, if I may ask? Oh, we had already been separated since uh, 2013. Okay, so you had been separated, yeah. but you were still in contact with your best friend yeah she was still living when um when my ex left she was still living in vancouver and we talked every day like there was never a separation between the two of us other than when she moved to ontario there's physical separation but even then Mm -hmm. the kids and i would fly out and stay with her every six months we fly out for christmas or she fly out to us we're very very close closer to her than to my ex-husband at the time right and then did they get into a relationship it's always the question, and I don't believe so. Um, that's what the first question everyone asks is that, were they in it together? And I just don't see it. I've looked at it six ways from Sunday, and I just don't see it. I see uh, in her, I see, honestly, a, a sociopath who really felt that I didn't deserve my kids. And she wanted yep. to get them away from me. My guest is Natalie Forchuk, founder and advocate at ParentalAlienationSupportCanada.com. And if you need support, you can email hello at ParentalAlienationSupportCanada.com. Natalie, thanks so much for staying on the line. If you don't mind, can you just define for the listeners what parental alienation is? Sure. So simply put, parental alienation is when one parent turns the child against the other parent. So a parent badmouths the child. Like there's been a separation or divorce, and a parent will say, you know, your father won't send you money for hockey, so you can't go to hockey. Um, or your dad left because, you know, he's a bad person. It just plants the seeds or outrightly tells the child that the other party is a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And if you're just joining the program, Natalie shared her heart-wrenching story about her own parental alienation where her ex-husband and best friend turned her children against her and then they en- wound up in court and in Uh, uh, therapy to get the family back together in a certain way, a way that was more amicable. And um, Natalie, where are you and your children today in this process? Um, Today, it's actually interesting because I've been re-alienated from one of my children. So my daughter lives with me uh, in on the West Coast. And my son has remained in Toronto uh, with his father. And I haven't seen my son in two and a half years. And so you were reunited with your son and daughter, mm-hmm. and, and, we, and how long yeah. How long did that last? Uh, from 2017, mid-2017, 
Uh, things got really good in about 2018 until uh, May of 2021. And was it the same couple, the, that they're not a couple, apparently, um, that no. <laughs> the ex-husband and the best friend? It's hard to believe, but... <laughs> I, 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 and listen, I, I, you know, viewers will probably say, yeah, right, no, they probably were, and I, I actually don't know, so... Yeah, yeah, we, we, never, we never know what goes on behind closed doors. Um, but, so did the two of them then re-alienate your son? Uh, no, it really was this time just my ex-husband, although I do know that they remained in communication. So it's possible, but she wasn't present. She actually returned to Vancouver uh, in 2018 to live out on the West Coast again, which is where she's from. Mm-hmm. Women supporting women, huh? Um, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hear these stories, you know, best friends, um, you know, having affairs with you know their best friends husbands yeah. that kind of thing um so now you're with one child and the other one has been alienated against you um yeah. which brings up another problem that which i don't know that your ex is realizing but then it separates the siblings from one another i mean yeah. this this really and i hope it hasn't but this has the potential to inflict tremendous mental health issues on children. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I know for a fact my daughter is suffering with mental health issues, and it is regards to all of this trauma and turmoil and chaos. Um, I can only imagine for my son, but to split a family in the way that it's been split, which was aggressively and one-sided, not in agreement um, or in tandem, uh, can only do harm. To all parties. Absolutely. And, you know, parental alienation or PA, as you said, profoundly affects both children and the alienated parents. And children of parental alienation are at increased risk for future trust, relationship issues, depression, and substance abuse. And I've seen that in my clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've seen, I'm thinking, coming to mind a, a woman who turned her children or tried to turn her children against her ex-husband and one child has depression another one has anger issues and another one has substance abuse issues mm-hmm. you know and and the pain for you it just must be excruciating it is it's um it's a pain i live with obviously on a daily basis and it's taken a lot of self-work i do attend therapy regularly that's an absolute must and uh, try to work through it every day. You know, uh, as of today, my son is in grade 12 and I'm missing his grade 12 year. And, uh, you know, there are constant reminders around everywhere in life. You know, there's other teenagers that I see every day and, and I constantly live in that, that place of grief, a cycle of grief that never ends. Absolutely. And there are, to my understanding, some symptoms of parental alienation, like you mentioned, a campaign of denigration. For people out there mm-hmm. who are listening who might be experiencing this, who, who may have experienced this, um, you may have gone through weak, frivolous, absurd rationalizations, a lack mm-hmm. of ambivalence, that independent thinker phenomenon, absence of guilt. You know, the alienating parent um, has no guilt around it, which, you know, says to me, maybe they don't have emotions, they lack empathy, maybe they're a sociopath. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, it, it not only affects you as the parent, the alienated parent, but it also affects the cousins and the aunts and uncles and grandparents. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just, you know, has this domino effect as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. It does. I mean, in my specific case, but I know many other people that I mentor and coach, the same thing is the splitting of the family. Suddenly kids are losing that, you know, group family dynamic that they may have had. And they can go for years without seeing a grandparent. Grandparents can pass. You know, okay. people can pass away without ever having reconnected. And also under a false narrative, usually on the alienator side, the family has a very different understanding as to what has happened. Uh, versus what has actually happened. They think, you know, in my case, I'm a bad wife. I'm a bad mother. Uh, I made it all up. Very much gaslighting all day long. But mm-hmm. the family chooses to believe that rather than to explore and say, hey, maybe there's a problem on our side. Right. So his family is supporting him, The your exes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, all of this, I imagine, uh, this is a word that I use commonly, is the depleted mother syndrome or the depleted woman syndrome, Mm. that feeling of mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion, depersonalization, no fulfillment. And and it's caused by, you know, these demands, these emotional demands that you have to try to figure this out and try to do the best for your children. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I can tell you, I I have been depleted. Uh, it, It is a constant toll to try and figure out what is the right move for my daughter, what is the right way to try and stay connected to my son? Will I ever see him again? Will he ever believe me? What are the long-term effects on my daughter? You know, being a woman in this day and age and being a mother is, is hard enough on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Throw in something like this, and it is mentally, physically, and emotionally taxing every single day. Oh, I can't even imagine. Uh, to people out there who are suffering with this, and it certainly can be mothers who turn their children against uh, the father, Mm-hmm. Um, or mothers against another mother, as well mm-hmm. if they're in a same-sex relationship, it can happen to anybody, basically. What would you say to somebody out there who thinks they might be experiencing this or are, in fact, in the throes of parental alienation? I would say then, first of all, if you think that you are, you likely are. Uh, there are some very clear signs. And when our children stop communicating with us on a regular basis, they stop sharing, they become reticent, they become angry. They, children don't come up with those concepts on their own. When they start writing to you or texting in a way that is an adult tone, you know your child. And if you're starting to see these signs of the withdrawal and, and the lack of connection, you likely are experiencing it. And if you are experiencing it, there's a few things to do. First of all, get support for yourself, whether that's therapy or you know coming to a support group or a support page like ours. Educate yourself. Find a therapist and a lawyer who understand and acknowledge PA. There are PA deniers out there in the legal community and even in the therapeutic community. So, you know, choose wisely. But also, first and foremost, know that it has nothing to do with you. This is not your fault. Even though it's against you and it's against your children, you did not do this. And the alienator is going to be telling you it is all your fault. It is total gaslighting. And it's easy to buy into and question yourself. But please know that you're not alone, you can overcome this, and there are people and resources out there to help. Thank you so much, Natalie. Uh, Natalie Forchuk, my guest, is the founder and advocate for Parental Alienation Support Canada. You can email the organization, hello, at parentalalienationsupportcanada.com. Natalie, I want to say thank you once again, and I wish you and your children all the best in your future endeavors and getting your family back together. I appreciate that, Marie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. 
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.